1: The Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. You know, soon we will all be glued to our television sets for either live or recorded versions of the NFL scouting combine, colloquially known as the Underwear Olympics, where a bunch of NFL prospects who are hoping to be drafted as high as possible will enter through a litany, a barrage, a battery, if you will, of athletic testing. And the far more important, but arguably less exciting, medical and interview parts of the NFL Combine in attempts to oppress the brass of even just one team who can help make their dreams come true. And you know, as I was debating the types of things that I wanted to talk about this off season, I thought to myself, what if there was a combine for podcasters? Not a physical combine, of course. We all spend our days talking in front of a microphone. So the answer to that question would be embarrassment. Well, Bruce, you didn't say a question. I know I didn't say a question. Whatever the question was, the answer would very likely be embarrassment. But what kind of drills would they have us run? What type of competencies would we make sure that we have to show? And so today's episode of the Bruce exclusive is going to be me going through four significant competencies of podcasting that I thought were funny. I'm totally not trying to find a way to make it so I'm allowed to be disjointed and weird in this episode. No, 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 no. This was the plan the whole time. This is all part of the plan and not some rudimentary chassis that I have come up with at the last minute to find a way to fit all these random topics under one podcast episode banner. I would never do that. So, without further ado, the drills are as follows. Analysis, philosophy, research, and pontification. Those are the four drills that I will be going through today. Because each one of them has a specific topic that I would like to talk about relative to the Buffalo Bills or the NFL at large. We're going to start with analysis. And thankfully, there was actually a roster move made that can serve as a pivot point for this piece. And that is that cornerback Saran Neal is back to the Buffalo Bills on a three-year deal with a maximum value of $10.9 million. So this is the analysis of that re-signing. Number one, the wording of the leak is very important. The fact that it said three years, $10.9 million of maximum value means it's likely that the person who told the NFL Insider about this particular thing was indeed an agent because maximum value is, of course, what the agent is gunning for. They want that number to be as big as possible because it serves as partially an advertisement for their services. So that's the first point. That wording of the tweets is very important because a lot of times these insiders are specifically given the actual wording that they would like used from the person who's leaking them the information. So it's very, very, very important that when you're reading the tweet or the post on Facebook or wherever it is that you're using that, that you examine the wording and the terminology that is used. And think, who is benefiting from this specific terminology? And more often than not, it's either the agent or the team. And that will help tell you who is framing the conversation that is currently happening on your preferred social media platform. Now, in regards to the actual contract itself, I'm not overly shocked. But the thing that gives me the most interest in regards to the Serrano contract is the fact that I can almost guarantee that it's not going to be salaries that are just even, even, even that add up to $10.9 million, which means there has to be incentives in there. And the incentives are likely, because they usually are, for snap counts. Is there a possibility that you might see more Saran Neal on defense this upcoming year? Because as pointed out by NFL insider Aaron Wilson, it is the most guaranteed money, per year of any special teams player in the NFL. The other potential thing to take a look at here is that there's a possibility that this could mean that you see less of Tyler Maticavich. And by less of Tyler Maticavich, I mean he might not be on the team. Because A.J. Klein is the obvious linebacker cut candidate this offseason. But Tyler Maticavich is a sneaky one as well. And if you just re-signed a special teams ace, you might be more willing to part with Matakiewicz at linebacker and just roll right on through with cheaper depth players at linebacker because you're comfortable having Sir Ron Neal as sort of the captain of that defense when it comes to special teams, the captain of that special teams gunner unit. And so you think with a linebacker depth, Andre Smith, Tyrell Dodson, Joe Giles-Harris, all of them play special teams, which means you have a less of a need for Matakiewicz if you have Saran Neal back. So the way things played out at cornerback could impact the way things play out at linebacker. So those were my observations from listening to and digesting the Saran Neal contract. That was the first drill. I hope I performed well when it came to analysis of the NFL Podcasters Combine. The second drill is philosophy because a podcaster needs to be able to analyze, but they also need to be able to philosophize. Philosophy is important because it gives stability and consistency to the analysis. If my analysis on Saran Neal is one way and then next week something else happens and I say a bunch of things that totally conflict With the thing I just told you, my analysis has had the knees cut off on it by my lack of consistent philosophy. One of the things that you know what you're going to get when you boot up the Bruce exclusive is you know you're going to get similar Bruceisms. You know where I stand on certain things. And so the analysis that I provide is provided from a foundation of the philosophy. But if I cannot properly communicate my philosophy and I'm not consistent in its application, then my analysis will then fall short. So let's talk about philosophy. And specifically, I want to talk about overreacting to the Super Bowl. Now, you know, I'm not a big fan of overreaction on this podcast. Be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope you get lucky. There's a reason why I'm not much of an overreactor. However, one of the things that comes out from this particular Super Bowl is well, teams need to be more aggressive in team building because the Rams did it. But for every Rams team that did it, there are plenty of other teams who tried to do it and failed miserably. But we don't think about those times because they didn't win the Super Bowl. In addition, The Rams model is not replicatable for one very significant reason. The most significant change that the Rams made on their team this season was not Von Miller. It was not Odell Beckham Jr. It was going from Jared Goff to Matt Stafford. The Rams knew that. That's why they traded for him. But that level of upgrade isn't available every offseason to every team with an elite supporting cast that's being held back by less than stellar quarterback play. Think about the situation that the Rams were in. The Rams were in a situation where they were a Super Bowl caliber roster with arguably one of the best defensive players of all time on their defensive line, really good receivers, and a cornerback who consistently gets discussed about one of the best players at his position in football. But they didn't have the quarterback who could give them the options that they needed on offense. They were too limited. How many teams does that apply to? So if you want the Buffalo bills to go out and be the Rams, then I would say that the reason the bills can't be the Rams at the finish line is because the bills aren't the Rams at the starting line. The Rams made that maneuver because of where they were at. The Buffalo bills are not at that spot. Different problems require different solutions. And the Rams had a unique sort of problem. And so it required a fairly unique sort of solution. Trading your quarterback and some picks for an upgraded quarterback. Because that was the biggest piece of this. It wasn't Odell Beckham. It wasn't Von Miller. It was Matt Stafford. And specifically, the gap between Stafford and Goff. The gap between Stafford and Goff, if that same gap is then applied from Josh Allen to the next person, that person doesn't exist. There isn't a player who is Matt Stafford better than Jared Goff level, better than Josh Allen. That doesn't happen. And I don't think anybody is complaining about the way Josh Allen's played. So you don't get to be the Rams. You can't be the Rams in this offseason Because you're not where the Rams were at last offseason. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when you look at the Rams' philosophy around aggressive team building and trading away draft picks, all that stuff is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with being aggressive. However, it's very important to know that if the Rams don't win that Super Bowl, you look completely differently at them. Because what you've done is you've taken something as complex as team-building philosophy and you've eliminated a larger sample size specifically on purpose to focus on a smaller sample size. If the Bengals win that game, the narrative coming out is number one, how great Joe Burrow is. But number two, maybe offensive line play is overrated. Maybe you just go weapons, 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 because it worked for the Bengals. It worked this one time for this one team. When the Broncos ran into a Seattle Seahawks buzzsaw in the Super Bowl, the narrative that entire offseason was, well, maybe defense really does win championships. We decided to ignore every bit of what we had as far as evidence goes, We threw it out the window completely because of the most recent game we watched. We are openly deciding to reject philosophies based on larger sample sizes in favor of philosophies based on smaller sample sizes, which is insane. It's insanity. And that's why I'm not saying that the Buffalo Bills shouldn't be aggressive when the right move presented itself. I'm saying you cannot go, you know what? Let's just be the Rams. Let's just do what the Rams did. You're not in that position. And you are sacrificing the vast majority of what you know to be true about NFL team building based on one game. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We have other drills to run through. Stick with me. We'll be right back.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning.
1: Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We've been through two of the podcasters' combine drills, analysis and philosophy. We took a break, and now we're going to talk about research and pontification. And research is always a part of... Podcasting because you have to present data to talk about your argument, talk about your conclusion. Unless you just want to say random stuff, throw spaghetti at a wall, see what sticks. The listeners are going to want you to back up your particular point with some semblance of data. But not only that, it has to be data that connects accurately to the point you're trying to make. Because sometimes you can grab a data point point, it doesn't really mean much. But the thing that I want to talk about when it comes to research is the correlation between pressure rate and pass defense success. Because pressures and sacks has once again become a popular topic on te- interwebs. And I want to chat a little bit about how the pressure rate correlates with defensive pass success versus sack rate correlating with Defensive pass success. And I want to do this by looking at the top four defenses the last couple of years. Why four? Well, it divides nicely into 32. And I was having a discussion on Twitter earlier this year where I wanted to define elite. And top four got a lot of discussions. So we're going to use elite pass defenses in terms of top four. Here were the top four defenses against the pass. In 2021, Buffalo, Dallas, New England, New Orleans. Let's check and see how they did. In pressure rate, Buffalo was number one. Where was Dallas? Number four. Where was New England? New England was 11th. Where was New Orleans? 13th. So one, four, 11, and 13 in pressure rate. What about sack rate? According to the NFL team rankings website with sack rate, New Orleans was eighth. Buffalo was ninth. Dallas was 16th and New England was 18th. So as a general rule, the sack rate was lower than the pressure rate for the top four defenses in the NFL in DVOA passing efficiency in 2021. So let's go to 2020, because that's a small sample size. In 2020, the top four defenses against the pass by DVOA were Pittsburgh, Washington, New Orleans, and the Rams. Let's go to pressure rates for 2020. Pittsburgh was number one. New Orleans was sixth. The Washington football team was ninth. And the Rams were 17th. So, one- Six, nine, 17 on pressure rate. Let's go to sack rate. In sack rate in 2020, Pittsburgh one, Rams two, Washington four, New Orleans seventh. So in 2020, sack rate correlated far more with passing defense success than pressure rate. In 2021, pressure rate correlated more significantly with defensive pass success than sack rate did. Let's go back one more year. Let's go to 2019. We're looking for a tiebreaker, right? Top four pass defenses in 2019. New England, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Baltimore. New England, San Francisco, Pittsburgh, Baltimore. Let's see where they ended up on pressure rate. Pittsburgh was number one. San Francisco was number two. New England was 10th. And Baltimore was 16th. 1, 2, 10, 16. In sack percentages, Pittsburgh was number one. San Francisco was number three. New England was number seven. And Baltimore was 19th. So with sack rate, it was 1, 3, 7, 19. So we have three years here of data. One year was really close in correlation between pressure rate and elite defensive play and sack rate and elite defensive play. One year, the correlation was stronger between sack rate and elite defensive play than it was for pressure rate and elite defensive play. And then one year, the most recent year, the correlation was stronger between pressure rate and elite defensive play than it was between sack rate and elite defensive play. You might be saying, Bruce, we did all that and it's not even conclusive. No, we did all that to recognize that there are different ways of skinning a cat. Sack rate is good. You should go for it. You should get as many sacks as possible. But pressure rate still correlates strongly with having a really good defense. So we shouldn't just throw it out on an individual level or as a team defense. Pressure rate does matter. I mentioned before on this podcast, I mentioned it again on social media. That the coverage you play on the back end influences the type of outcome you're likely to get on the front end when you obtain a pressure. I don't think there's conclusive, definitive evidence from what we just said. I think it would take me a month of work or more and a lot more than just that amount of research to be able to come up with something conclusive. But for a quick and dirty, let's look at stuff real fast, there's nothing that says you can't be an elite defense. If you have a good pressure rate, even if your sack rate isn't high. Now, if you have a high pressure rate, you're likely to have a higher sack rate for obvious reasons. But all this stuff still matters. That's the research drill of the Podcasters Combine. And the last one is pontification. Now, you could make an argument that this is the thing I'm historically been the best at. I had a listener email me not too long ago and said, Bruce, you don't do podcasts. You do sermons. And I said, okay, I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. If that's my niche, if I am the fire and brimstone Southern Baptist preacher of Bill's Mafia, then so be it. I'm cool with that. There are worse things. So I'm all right with that. And here's the thing I want to pontificate about today. Flexible expectations are important to fandom. I think they're important to life in general, but I'm not going to go that far into this. I've said on this podcast before that expectations minus reality equals disappointment. And I've also said before on this podcast that Super Bowl or bust is an unhealthy mentality. If you put these two concepts together, I would say flexible expectations are important for fandom super bowl or bus isn't flexible expectations the offseason is only a success if x y and z isn't flexible expectations you need to make peace with the idea that your team could be better than it was last year and achieve less and your team could be worse than last year and achieve more if you wrap your head around these two concepts you can have more flexible expectations I don't expect my team to win a Super Bowl. I expect my team to be a Super Bowl contender. And then one of the years they are a Super Bowl contender, hopefully they'll win the Super Bowl. The more rigid and narrow your expectations are of anything in life, the higher the probability of disappointment. Because you have fixated, you have fixed yourself on such a narrow definition of success That you're bound to be disappointed. Think about how many teams went into this year thinking Super Bowl or bust. The Buccaneers probably. The Packers probably. The Rams probably. Maybe the Bills. Maybe you're one of those people. Only one of those teams gets to win it. Did every other team have a disastrous offseason? A disastrous season? Should every other team and fan base be running around with their heads down, with their chin pressed against their chest? No, I don't think so. I think that flexible expectations are important. And what you do is you broaden your definitions. I've mentioned before on this podcast that things that you want to narrowly define are probably broader than you think. Success is one of those things. Success means different things to different people, but the definition of success is probably broader than you think because I'll tell you what, it's not win the Super Bowl or it's a failure. That's not it. It's not make a million dollars or you're a failure. There's so many other ways of defining these words that we choose to define so incredibly narrowly. The more flexible your expectations, the better you'll be. How do you achieve flexible expectations? You achieve it by broadening your definitions of the words that you are trying to so narrowly define. I mentioned on social media that I changed email addresses. My email address for Bruce is IamBruceNolan at gmail.com. It used to be IamBruceAlmighty at yahoo.com, but I couldn't deal with Yahoo anymore. So here we are. I am Bruce Nolan at gmail.com. And I have two emails to get to. Jacob sent me a mock draft and said I would cry tears of joy with Tyler Linderbaum, center from Iowa at 25, Kyler Gordon from Washington at 57, John Ridgeway from Arkansas as a defensive tackle at 101, Calvin Austin III from Memphis at 124, Jerry and Ely, a running back from Mississippi at 129, at 168, Marcus Jones, a corner from Houston. At 184, D'Angelo Malone, an edge from Kentucky. At 20, at 202, actually, Matt Areza, punter from San Diego State. 229, Myron Tagovailoa-Amosa, edge from Notre Dame. 244, Jeremiah Demel. Linebacker, North Carolina. That's a, that's a lot of picks, man. I don't know if the Bills have that many available roster spots, but I don't hate Gordon, Ridgeway Austin. I like Tyler Lindenbaum. I do. I just think he needs to be in a zone scheme. And it makes me wonder if the Bills are going to run a lot of zone, then sure, let's go. Tyler Lindenbaum, walk in the, the door as a guard right now, get you on the move. But if you intend to run a lot more man and gap runs, the way that the Buffalo Bills ran them in the back half of 2021, then Linderbaum might not be the most ideal fit. But I love Gordon Ridgeway Austin back to back to back in two, three, four. So I wouldn't cry tears of joy, but I I wouldn't hate it. Jamie McAndrews sent me a email and he said, Bruce, I heard something on the cover one podcast the other day regarding secure positions from a Bills." perspective, i.e. positions where the Bills won't be drafting the first round, and it's taken me down a rabbit hole of my own creation, and here it is. Here is the take from Jamie. If the right player is available and Edmonds has not signed an extension, the Bills will draft a middle linebacker at 25 and potentially move up for them. We talk about needs as a team, but with a successful quarterback, we often get caught up in just believing the rest of the team will be found and put together in free agency and the draft with ease. We don't tend to look at the season after we just shrug our shows and our shoulders and tell ourselves we got Josh Allen. Let's worry about another day. However, in 2023, we could potentially have a black hole at the middle linebacker position. And it's either going to be a horrendously expensive one to sort out, or we'll have to cross our fingers in the draft. This is where my thoughts come in. What makes hitting a home run easier? Having two swings, Big Baller Bean is a safety first GM. He doesn't go into the draft with open holes on his roster. He won't want to be held hostage by Edmonds' agents at any point in his extension negotiations. We certainly don't know where Bills will be drafting in 2023 and who will be available on the board in that position. So that's why I believe he may try to sort this situation out this year. If the board is generous to the Bills and the stud is available, he'll be able to use assets to get him. First, A.J. Klein's getting cut. Secondly, with three good linebackers, the Bills can throw a few more variations in defense rather than being in nickel most of the time. Thirdly, Bean can use his players as a trump card. Edmonds' agents know they have advantage in negotiating with Bean as the Bills need Edmonds more than Edmonds needs the Bills and will want the money to reflect that. With this potential new elite middle linebacker in the squad, Big Baller Bean can offer more team-friendly contracts to Edmonds because Bean already has his low-cost replacement sorted for the next four years. If Edmonds re-signs for a team-friendly deal, they can either run with three starting linebackers they have or they can look at trading. However, I can't see a situation where Bean goes into the draft desperate for a middle linebacker. P.S. I really want a cornerback. I am going to go highly improbable on this take. I would be absolutely shocked if the Bills drafted a linebacker in the first round or traded up for one. I think the Bills really like Tremaine Edmonds. And I think if they can't get a negotiation for an extension completed this offseason, they'll try next offseason. And if they can't, they'll tag him. Because the tag for off-ball linebackers isn't that ridiculous. I don't think there's any scenario where the Buffalo Bills look at Tremaine Edmonds and go, well, we need to hedge against this by drafting a third linebacker. I think they want to be a nickel. I think it's something they believe. And so taking a linebacker that high who is going to end up being on the field if Edmonds stays for 25% of the snaps, maybe less, feels like a tremendous waste of resources. So for me, I would be shocked if they did it, especially because you'd be doing it for the reason Jamie just said in regards to getting negotiating power. I don't think you'd spend a first-round pick to give yourself more negotiating leverage when it comes to Tremaine Edmonds. I would be absolutely shocked I think the Bills have shown what type of defense they'd like to run. And I really think that it's not going to be one that has three linebackers on the field. Especially since they just paid Taron Johnson a ton of money because of how important he is because they're in nickel on the time. So for me, I would be shocked. Jamie's email was titled to me, New Bruce address, same poor takes from me. Jamie, if the Bills draft a middle linebacker, In the first round, I would like you to send me an email and just dunk the ever-living crap out of me. Do it. Because you would deserve your shine at that point. You would deserve your moment in the spotlight. And the entire time the draft is going on, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I hope Jamie's not right. I hope they don't draft the off-ball linebacker. I'm fine with the linebacker room as it is. Evan says, I'm already planning a free agency almighty take and draft almighty take. I'm just waiting to see what players get tagged. But here's my really stupid, really early almighty trade take. I think Bean doubles as Josh Allen's. Imagine what you could do if you have a Josh Allen behind center and a second Josh Allen rushing the passer. Josh Allen can't single-handedly wreck a Buffalo game plan for Jacksonville if he's already wearing a Bills uniform. A lot of people have talked about this this offseason. I don't think Josh Allen's available. It's one of the things we do sometimes in the offseason. We go, oh, I'll trade for this guy, trade for Miles Garrett, trade for Josh Allen. Do, do you know if they're available? Well, everybody's available for the right price. No, that's not necessarily true. If you'd have to offer Cleveland five first round picks for Miles Garrett, that's how unavailable he is. Then essentially, he's unavailable. One of the lovely little caveats to the NFL trade discussions are you can only trade three years in the future. That's it. You can only trade picks three years into the future. So the most picks you can possibly offer someone is your entire draft class for the next three years. If someone offered you that for Josh Allen, would you take it? Probably not. You probably wouldn't take three ones, three twos, three threes, three fours. You probably would say no for Josh Allen. Well, in that case, not everybody's available. So not everybody's available because there are limits to what you can trade. And if that limit is ridiculous and it's still not enough, then not everybody's available. So obviously that doesn't apply to Josh Allen, the defensive end for Jacksonville. But I don't know if he's available. So until I see some sort of rumor that he's being shopped or he's available or something like that could even happen, then I don't really know. And that's probably what makes this a crazy take from Evan is he's off trading for people that we don't even know are available. I wouldn't be upset about that by any means, but I don't think Doug Peterson inherited the Jacksonville job to tear everything down to the studs. I think he thinks there's a young, viable core there, and he can take a step forward with Trevor Lawrence. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the NFL podcasters combine. We did analysis, we did philosophy, we did research, we did pontification. And then just for the interview portion of the Combine, we did emails. I hope I did well. I hope I scored a high RAS score. I hope it was at least like a seven or something like that. And if not, and you thought I was a disaster, and you think I'm undraftable, well, you know what? That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Run.